0: So, we've uh, spent the last two weeks thinking about the various plagues that God inflicted on Egypt because of Pharaoh's, um, Pharaoh's refusal to let the Israelites go. And today, as we move into chapters 11 and 12 of the book of Exodus, uh, we come to the last plague and to the one which I think has the most obvious relevance um, to us, Because our subject today is the Passover. Let's read chapter 11 to start. And just in case there's any confusion, because chapter 10 finishes with Moses saying, I will never appear before you again. And then we find a further dialogue. But this further dialogue in chapter 11 actually comes as a result of um, God giving Moses a further revelation before he left Pharaoh. And so he finally leaves Pharaoh at the end of the passage that we're going to, we're going to just read. So we'll start with, um, with chapter 11, and I'm reading um, from verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here, and when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbours for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favourably disposed towards the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, This is what the Lord says About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave, said Moses. Hot with anger, he left Pharaoh. And that was it. No more opportunities for repentance, no more opportunities for Pharaoh to change his mind. Um, No way for the Egyptians to avoid what was going to happen. But interestingly, and unlike any of the other plagues, which were all targeted towards Egypt and the Israelites were not included in um, the suffering that accompanied the other plagues, This time, for the first time, the Israelites had to do something if they wanted to be saved. And it was not intended. Um, The Lord didn't intend the Israelites to suffer this plague. But nevertheless, as I say, they had to do something. And we'll read about that now in chapter 12. So reading from verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbour, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat, roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs and internal organs. Do not leave any of it until morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you're to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you, are to, where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. And down to verse 21. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, "'Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. "'Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin "'and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. "'None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. "'When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, "'he will see the blood on the top and sides of the door frame, "'and will pass over that doorway, "'and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your homes.'" The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. So, dramatic story. Um, Let's look at the timeline first. So, firstly, the Lord tells Moses what needs to be done. Uh, On the 10th day of the month, they were to take a lamb, one for each normal sized household, a male, one year old, sheep or goat without defect. They were to care for it for four days. It doesn't actually say why, um, there's lots of ministry about why and I think that's because there is generally a consensus that that was probably to give time for um, the Israelites to observe the, the lambs and for if there was any sickness or defect that wasn't immediately obvious then that would become more obvious over the period of the four days. Um, I think there was probably also a little bit of a practical element to this as well because not every family would have a sheep or a goat handy. And in some cases, there were going to have to be agreements about who was, you know, which, 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 which households were going to come together, and people are people. And there, was, there were probably some people who would have preferred to have had their Passover experience with somebody else, so all of that kind of stuff. And it was absolutely essential that they did it, so there could be no time for someone getting to the 14th day and they still haven't got a sheep or a goat sorted out and decided who they were going to be um, joining with that night. Then on the 14th day, which I understand was a full moon, Um, so of all the days in the month, the ideal time of the month, because they were going to spend at least some of the exodus um, moving at night, um, it was a good time of the month for this to to happen, Um, God doesn't do anything by accident, so perhaps that was part of the plan, but on the 14th day of the month they were to kill their lambs, and they were to do it at twilight. why twilight? can't think of any spiritual significance, but I can think of a practical one, because as we were thinking a few weeks ago, the Egyptians were hard taskmasters. They'd in- increased their work quotas. They-, they worked long, long hours. So probably at twilight was going to be the first time that they would have the opportunity to do this. And it would seem to be in the Lord's will that he wanted everyone doing it at the same time. So 14th day, they, um, they were to kill their lambs. And they were told how they were to cook them, how they were to eat them, and what to do with the blood. The all-important smearing of the blood around the doorframe of the house where they were gathered. And then they were told, and they were told what was going to happen next. And it says in verse 28, the Israelites obeyed all these instructions. It's quite a change from the beginning of this story a few weeks ago, where we had Moses doubting and reluctant to obey the word of the Lord. And then we get the, um, the Israelites doing what Moses and Aaron tell them, and then their work quotas were increased, and then they regretted doing what, what, uh, what they'd been told. And there was just a lot of doubts out there, wasn't there? And we were thinking a few weeks ago how God, in these mighty acts, was revealing himself not just to the Egyptians, but it was a revelation to the Israelites as well. They were learning who their God is. And they learned at the end of all these plagues that their God was not a God that they decided to disobey his his commands. So these commands were given through Moses and all the people obeyed the instructions. And then we get to verse 29. Midnight, 14th day of the month, it says the Lord struck down all the firstborn. Now we don't know exactly what, what happens in some things in scripture, we're told quite a lot of detail. But interestingly, when it comes to the crucifixion, unlike some of the films that have been made about the crucifixion, um, the Bible doesn't go into gratuitous violence. We don't get all of the gruesome detail. And likewise, on this terrible night where Hollywood could certainly make a, have a field day on, a, on, on something like this, this was a spectacular event, I think. We learned very little only that the Lord went through the land and, and, sl- and slew all the firstborn. If we get to um, Psalm 78, we actually find out a bit more information. Um, we were singing this morning that he could have called 10,000 angels. I have no scripture to back this next comment up, but I think there might have been 10,000 angels. Well, actually, I do have a scripture, Psalm 78, because it says uh, that was, there was a band of destroying angels that were sent. Uh, Psalm 78 is talking about this event. So you can imagine... Um, many of these destroying angels going throughout Egypt um, and carrying out the judgment of God on every household where the blood was not found. And this time, of course, it didn't just affect the general Egyptian population, which might have been true of some of the other plagues. Pharaoh in his ivory tower was shielded at least in part from the full impact of some of the other plagues. But this time it was terrible and it was personal in that his own his own son died and he was persuaded finally finally to let the people go so let's think of some of the lessons that we can learn from um, this event in israel's history i think the first question um, that we might find ourselves asking is is why um, why for this plague did the Israelites have to do anything? And why did God give them such specific instructions? Well, we know from Romans 15 and 4 that everything written in the Old Testament has a purpose. And it's, it's written there to teach us today Things which God wants us to know. Some people think that the Old Testament is no longer relevant. We've moved on from the Old Covenant. We're into the New Covenant. Surely the Old Testament is just, that was, you know, it served its purpose. It's the Jewish Bible. It's not for Christians today. But that's not what Romans, Romans 15 and 4 tells us. Everything that was written in the past is written to teach us. God did things in the Old Testament which, from our perspective, looking back... Are shadows of what he did later on. I have to get that in my mind, because say why is why why is the old why is it a shadow of things that haven't happened? But if you think about us today, looking back now at things that happened in the life of the Lord Jesus and many other things, it's like they cast a shadow backwards in history, from our perspective looking back. So these these were shadows of what of things that God was going to to do. Um, And as Jesus told the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, the things that are written throughout the Old Testament, beginning with Moses, it says, they all are pictures of Christ. The scriptures, Old Testament um, scriptures, speak of him. And so it is, I think, with what we're going to be looking at and are looking at today. Now, the first thing that we might notice about the lambs chosen for the Passover is that they weren't just to be killed. They were to be sacrificed. And there's a subtle difference. (laughs) You might think, well, what what is the difference? Um, But the word sacrifice, which um, is used in verse uh, 27, reminds us that there there was a higher purpose for this killing. This wasn't just an elaborate way of preparing a meal to give them a bit of sustenance for a long journey. This was a sacrifice to the Lord. Verse 27 says this was a Passover sacrifice to the Lord which means that the ritual was important to God. Now scholars actually have different opinions about what the different elements of the Passover ritual actually signify. But I think there is a, um, the, 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 there is a, a fair amount of consensus that the, that the similarity with the consecration of the priests in Exodus 29 is, is relevant to this and um, because you know, the, the, there is, there's quite a few parts of that particular um, consecration ceremony which are similar to what was done um, in the Passover preparations. So it seems that as well as it being a means for them to save their own firstborn and as well as it being a test of faith and obedience and yes from a practical perspective it did give them a good meal before they set off on a very, a very long journey um, this was a means for the Israelites to be, to be consecrated, to be set apart as God's holy nation, as he would shortly confirm to them when they got to Mount, Mount Sinai. And I think it's, it's worth mentioning in this context that in 1 Corinthians 5 and 7, where Christ is described as our Passover lamb, so there's, a, there's an obvious um, link there, it's talking about yeast being symbolic of sin. Now, 1 Corinthians 5 is talking about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, so I'm not going to get into that because Steve's going to be talking about that shortly. That was the part of chapter 12 that I missed out before. Um, Paul's talking about yeast being symbolic of sin, and he's, he's in a sense telling the saints to consecrate themselves. He tells them to get rid of the sin in their lives and set themselves apart by holy behaviour as befitting those who are members of God's people. So whatever the difference Um, Whatever the different parts of the Passover ritual um, signify, overall I think we do get a sense that it was to prepare them for their future status as God's holy nation. And as God's uh, people today, there must surely be something um, in that, in terms of what God expects of us, consecrating ourselves and recognizing the important um, status that he has given to to his people today. And linked to this new status, the second point I'd like to make is about God resetting their calendar. Um, They didn't have fancy watches in those days to reset the calendar, but nevertheless, God pressed reset on the calendar of the Israelites. They were in a sense being reborn, weren't they? They were being free to live new lives. They were being set apart for God. And, and and God said that that month was going to be the first month of their new year going forward. Sometimes dates matter to God and he wants them to, to matter to us. Sometimes to us dates don't matter at all, don't we? Especially if we get older, birthdays become less. <laughs> don't matter and... And, and at our peril, some of us find out that anniversaries are more important than maybe we, we, we thought they were. Um, but dates matter. We, we, we have an important day today, don't we? Um, first day of the week. Same day of the week that the early Christians kept the remembrance. A celebration, uh, a weekly anniversary, is that, can you say that? A weekly reminder of it being the same day that the Lord Jesus raised, was raised from the dead. And we do it, and it matters you know, if we if we were doing something, um, you know, we had something else to do today, some special event, and we wouldn't have the remembrance yesterday or or, or tomorrow. And there's an example in the uh, in, in in the New Testament. We won't go to go into that now, but where Paul delayed his journey, so we could keep the remembrance on the day that it was kept. This day is important. Dates are important, and so the Lord reset the calendar, and. Uh, I think this date reset is linked to their consecration. On that night, the captives would be set free. They would become servants of God, no longer servants of Pharaoh. They would no longer have just a common ancestry that they would be constituted to be a holy nation. They were leaving behind everything that had been part of their lives up to then in Egypt. They were going to the promised land, a completely fresh start. So God gives them a new year, a new calendar to mark the first day of that year. And perhaps in their minds, uh, something which would just help them separate what they had become and what they were going to do with everything that was part of their, their former experience. There are parallels with the new birth, aren't there? Surely. Of course, we all got saved on different days, probably, so it would be a bit confusing if we were all using different calendars, if we all reset our own personal calendars um, based on the day that we got saved. But if it was practically possible, it would be a really great thing to do, wouldn't it? It'd be something that would be be worth doing because it was such a special day. I know that many of us can't remember the exact day that we got saved. It doesn't change the significance uh, the effectiveness, what actually happened on that day, but many of us, many of us, we, we can't remember the detail, because at that time, we didn't appreciate what was going on as much as maybe we appreciate it, uh, appreciate it, it now. But that doesn't mean that we can't bring it to life now in the way that we live our lives, the amazing change that happened when we got saved on that special day, we'd been born again. We've been given the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit living in us. We've become new creatures. We are members of Christ's body. We were dead and have been made alive forever and ever. We can't change the calendar, but we shouldn't forget that on a special day in the past, whether we appreciated it a lot or a little at the time, we chose to live a new life. Metaphorically, we chose to leave Egypt and go to the promised land. So thirdly, move on to my third um, thing. Um, The starring role in the story is the lamb, isn't it? Um, The Passover lamb. We probably take it for granted, um, I suppose, because we've heard so much ministry on this in the past. But let's just remind ourselves of a few of the New Testament verses which confirm our understanding that the lambs slaughtered in Egypt all speak of Christ or to use the metaphor that I, I referred to earlier, they are all shadows of Christ. John 1:29, John the Baptist sees the Lord Jesus passing by at the beginning of his public ministry and he declares, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 19 verse 36 mentions that no bone of Jesus was to be broken and that was in fulfillment of prophecy. We didn't read this bit in chapter 12 because it was talking about how the Passover feast would be kept in future years to remember what was going on. But it makes the point there that in the preparation of the Passover lamb, lambs each year, no bone was to be broken. So there's a clear um, parallel there. 1 Corinthians 5 and 7, that I referred to already, says Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So we can't get any more clear a reference uh, to that but it's, it just reminds us doesn't it that christ was a sacrifice there was a cost there was a cost to god in giving his own son and also it was a sacrifice for god it was something to satisfy his holy justice something to appease his wrath against sin christ was our sacrifice a sacrifice And then 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says that Christ was a lamb without spot or blemish. Referring to the perfection, the sinlessness of the Lord Jesus. But again we see a very clear link with the Passover lamb chosen. A lamb to be without spot or defect in any way. Which is why the point about the four days observation of the lamb. uh, We're probably right in our assumption that that was about assessing the lamb and making sure that it truly was without spot or blemish. You know, there are other comparisons that we could make, and people have spoken of them many times before in, in, in ministry. Um, you know, there's lots of things that we can spiritualise, and sometimes maybe we go too far, and sometimes we don't go far enough. Um, lots of lovely comparisons, and if they help in our appreciation of the Lord Jesus, they are absolutely valid things to do. Um, it might appeal to you, for example, that the gentle nature of a, of a lamb is a reminder of a gentle humble nature of the Lord Jesus, and that's a lovely thought. And actually Isaiah did it, and Gid read this morning from Isaiah 53. He drew a comparison between the Lord's lack of protest at his crucifixion with the lack of protest from a sheep or a lamb when it's taken for slaughter or to be sheared. So these character comparisons between um, lambs and the Lord Jesus are absolutely valid. But I think that the main comparison that we have is um, that the Passover lambs is that firstly, the Lord Jesus was innocent. Secondly, he was slaughtered. And thirdly, he was a substitute for those being saved. Let's just think about those three areas. Um, so firstly, the Lord Jesus was innocent. The lambs, of course, and, and there are different things obviously used in the different sacrifices um, and, and feasts that, we've, that we read about later on in the, in, the, in the Old Testament. But I think the special thing whenever we have um, an animal being used as a sacrifice is that they are the closest thing that you can get, which is living to a picture of the sinless saviour, because, of course, all of the lambs that were sacrificed were sinless. Unlike human beings, they don't have the capacity to sin. They didn't, they we're all, they're all part of a fallen creation, but they, the lambs sin. Our cats do some very naughty things, but they're doing it out of some kind of instinct. They're not doing it because they want to be naughty. It seems like that sometimes, but, but they're, not actually being, they're not actually being sinful. So the lambs were all sinless. Um, and furthermore, they had to be, as we thought, without any physical defects. And Hebrews 4 and 15 tells us that Jesus was tempted in all ways, just as we are, but without sin. I'm sure the Lord Jesus came under the, scr- the, uh, the scrutiny of his critics throughout his life. I mean, We know that even his own, his own family, his own brothers, didn't believe in him. And I imagine there must have been many times when he really wound them up by his perfection and they were always looking to go and tell mum and dad about something that they alleged that he'd done wrong. I'm sure he was under the under the eye of critics for the whole of his life, but during his public ministry especially he had many enemies and they, were, they, 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 they wanted nothing more than to find ways to trip him up and to prove that he was in the wrong in some way. You know, we see it in election campaigns today, don't we? Um, it, we saw it in the, in, in the American elections. You know, a, a candidate comes up and all the enemies get all of their researches onto it and they dig the dirt and they, they find all of, the, all of the, um, the faults in the candidates. But with the Lord Jesus, with all of his enemies coming together and trying to find the skeletons in his cupboard. There was nothing. As Pilate declared in response to all the fake evidence that was brought, this man has done nothing wrong. He was slaughtered. That's what we remind ourselves um, every week, don't we, in our remembrance um, service. And as I was um, thinking in my thanks offering this morning, that just like the Passover feast, um, we do have a, a, a sensory experience, don't we, at the Remembrance, um, and uh, d- that's just exactly what they were having in the Passover experience back in Egypt, and, and, and as they would every year that they celebrated um, the Passover, they would have something with, which, which, which they, that they tasted, which they touched, that they could see. It was a sensory experience, and so do we in the bread and wine. It's a reminder isn't it that the lord jesus gave his life and his blood for us which leads me to the third point and that was he is was is our substitute the innocent life of the passover lambs was taken instead of the firstborn of each household it was one life for another wasn't it and that wasn't a new concept you remember that 600 years previously we see the same thing with Abraham and Isaac. God told Abraham to sacrifice his son, um, but then he accepted a ram as a substitute uh, for Isaac. And of course, Abraham in faith predicted that God himself would provide the, the lamb, the ram, um, for the offering. And that's exactly what, um, and that's exactly what God did with Abraham and Isaac. And that's what he's done with us. He gave his own son as our substitute to die for our sins. And, Gid, you already read Isaiah 53 this morning, but I'm going to just read uh, just a few verses um, from that chapter again because I think it's one of the best chapters on the doctrine of substitution, proving to us that what the Lord Jesus did, he did in our place. Just a few verses uh, from verse 4, it says... Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. So the Lord Jesus, innocent, slaughtered, and our substitute. And we see a shadow of all of that in what happened in Egypt on that, on that dreadful um, day of the Passover. But just one final point I'd like to make, and it's just to go back to something, um, finish off something that I started saying last week about the way God judges, and judging God's judge righteous judgment has been a feature of what we've been thinking about over the last few weeks. Um, as it says in Hebrews 9, Everyone will face judgments. It's pointed unto man to die once and then to face judgment. And whilst we know that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, um, our salvation is guaranteed, we are saved, we can't lose that, we will be judged. We call it an assessment and that's what it is, it's an assessment of our lives. Um, but nevertheless, it takes place at the judgment seat of Christ. It is still, in a sense, a judgment. And therefore... We fall within the context of of um, of uh, of Hebrews nine. It's appointed for all to face judgment. Now we've seen in the last few weeks evidence or examples of God's judgment and His mercy in all the plagues that were inflicted on Egypt. And as we go throughout the Old Testament, we find more examples of God's judgment, but also His mercy. Occasions when God withheld judgments for one reason or another. Nineveh, for example. Uh, We know that Nineveh eventually was judged, but they repented. And for the people living in Nineveh at that time, they were saved the full force of God's (coughs) judgments. It says in Romans 3 that this was God in his forbearance, leaving sins unpunished. What the righteous God leaves sins unpunished? How... How can that be? I said that God will judge everyone with fairness, taking into account what they knew, how they lived, um, when they lived, and no doubt many, um, many other factors. But this, this, isn't, this isn't evidence that some people who've not heard the gospel of Christ or who lived before Christ, earn their way into, into heaven earn their salvation, far from it. In every case, for every person that God will judge, Old Testament, New Testament, people who've heard about Christ, um, or people who've not heard about Christ, in every case, Christ is still the answer. He died for all the sin of the world. And just as God knew the hard heart of Pharaoh, and just as he knew the doubting heart of Moses at the beginning, And just as he knew the good heart of King David, who he described as a man after his own heart, even though David did some terrible sins, God will know the true heart of everyone who stands before him one day. And with the blood of Christ available to atone for that sin, if God chooses to use it, he will judge righteously. And we can't say anything more than that. This is not an alternative gospel. I think it's just, uh, it just helps me to bring together and understand some of the questions that people ask. Well, what about the people who've never heard the gospel, people who've never heard about Christ, the people who have some mental um, illness that prevents them from understanding things you know, that are put, you know, put to them? What about all of those people? I think for all of that, we can only say, as Abraham did, the God of all the earth will do right in that final judgment. But it does help us to... Remember that the value of the sacrifice of Christ is, is superlative. It covers all the sin of the world. So that's the Passover. Um, next week, the story moves on. And uh, we're looking forward to Steve telling us about the, uh, that big day when the Israelites finally get to leave, uh, leave Egypt. So let's just, um, let's just have a closing prayer.